Welcome to Ew, That's Creepy podcast. This week, the twins will be sharing cases where a victim was buried or left in someone's backyard. We were inspired to do this theme from our Love of Oxygen's Buried in the Backyard show. In this episode, Melissa will take Jackie on a wild ride involving million-dollar schemes, sexual affairs, jealous lovers, and a potential cover-up. Please be aware that this episode will discuss domestic abuse, child abuse, assault, and murder. Listener discretion is advised. What is up, our creepy cats? Welcome back to You That's Creepy Podcast. It's Melissa and Jackie here. We're ready for some crime, baby. Are you guys as excited as we are that it's September? So it's now officially fall and we are ready to get spooky. And I hope you guys are too. Yeah, baby. I mean, this this theme doesn't really, it's not super Halloween-ish yet, but it's definitely some good crime, and when it's fall, I just feel like crime stories and everything like that, you're just more intrigued by them. Yeah, they hit, they hit different in fall. And you guys know how much Jackie and I, specifically Jackie, loves oxygen. <laughs> I love drama. I just love it. <laughs> Jackie loves oxygen because every show on oxygen is just always drama. Straight drama. I love it. Our first crime show was actually Snapped. The best. Always one of the best shows. That and Forensic Files will always be my two favorite. Snapped was the first crime show we ever watched, right? Yeah. Such good times. I know, right? The reason I bring up Oxygen is because Jackie and I always are watching Buried in the Backyard. I mean, it's pretty self-explanatory. It's about cases where they find people buried in a backyard. But for some reason, I don't know what it is with that show. All of the cases on there are so crazy. Yeah, that's one of their better shows, I think. One of the best ones. And the one with Ice tea. I like, yeah, I do In like that ice one. cold. He does good on that show. Yeah, his voice fits well for crime. So I'm going to tell Jackie about a crime story that I saw on Oxygen Buried in the Backyard. And this one was one that I was really wanting to do for the podcast because for, you know, Oxygen did a great job with the crime, but there was so much other stuff that went into this story and like there is so much. It involves a high-end law firm, affairs, spouses, murder, everything you could think of. Wow. Give me all the drama. Yeah. And I wanted the show to go into that a little more. So I was like, you know what? I'll bring drama. (laughs) Today I'm going to tell Jackie about the Melissa Lewis case. Um, And let's just get into it. Melissa Lewis was born Melissa Fisher in Jacksonville, Florida in November of 1968. Um, She went by the nickname Missy. I'm just going to stick with Melissa. I don't like to be called Missy, so. (laughs) I think that's like an older thing. Yeah, I I don't know any Missy's. (laughs) She was said to always be a very caring person who was really intelligent. She did have a rougher childhood. There weren't a lot of articles about her upbringing because a lot of the case happens during her adulthood, but they just said that she had a rough childhood, but she always watched over and took care of her younger sister, Carrie. And the two of them were super close as kids and as adults. At a young age, Melissa and Carrie's parents divorced. Her father was an alcoholic, so it was a little tumultuous. And later on, Melissa ended up dropping out of high school. In her early 20s, though, she decided to go back to school and get her GED. And then after that, she wanted to complete college and become a lawyer. Sounds like someone we know. (laughs) Who? (laughs) After finishing her college credits, Melissa enrolled at Nova Southeastern University Law Center in the late 1990s. 
And she, she was really, you know, just like the epitome of a great student. She was working all the time to afford tuition. And because of that, she took it really seriously. I think it's something to be said, you know, when people have to work a job and pay for their own tuition and you don't have your parents to help you out, it seems like those people usually take school very seriously because you are, you were the one paying for it. And Melissa was no exception. She was named the editor-in-chief of the Nova Law Review. And that was pretty prestigious because you had to have at least a 3.5 GPA to even be selected for that. She's killing it. Yeah, Melissa was smart and she worked hard. While in college, Melissa met a man who would change her life in good and bad ways. His name was Scott Rothstein, and he was a professor at the university. He taught Melissa in a trial advocacy class. Rothstein taught Melissa, or I'm sorry, he thought Melissa was bright and passionate. And in 1999, he asked her to work as a clerk at his law firm. And Melissa obviously was excited she got her first experience as a lawyer, assisting with employment cases and labor disputes. Melissa really liked, she really enjoyed that type of work. Everyone in her life said that she loved fighting for the underdog. So doing employment law where people thought, you know, that they were mistreated or things like that. Melissa loved that kind of law. So this was very fitting for her. In the Miami New Times article that I read, it was a really great article. I will link it. They wrote that as a lawyer, Melissa would sometimes even take juvenile cases for free just to like help teens get out of petty crimes and things like that. She sounds like a peach. She was great by all accounts. As Melissa finished law school and began working full time at the law firm under Scott Rothstein, She met another woman at the firm, and they became best friends. Love that for her. And it was the firm secretary and office manager. She was named Deborah. Her name is Deborah Coffey. And Deborah also grew up in a tumultuous household. Her parents had a strained relationship, so it seemed like the two had a similar background. And like I said, they became the best of friends. Um, And what started off as a small office with just a handful of lawyers in a couple of years developed into a powerhouse law firm. So Melissa started there in 1999 as a law clerk. By 2004, through all these mergers and partnerships, the firm was now Rothstein, Rosenfeld, and Adler. In the once quiet office of Scott Rothstein now had over 70 attorneys and was a multi-million dollar business. Wow. Good for him. Yeah. And that was a super quick explanation. Like, that was so quick. Rothstein, Rosenfeld, and Adler is well known. You could search it and you could, if you want more background, like, oh, how did they go from being a small firm to this multi-million dollar business? Um definitely read about it but there were just so many mergers and whatnot it was irrelevant to this so that was why I'm not gonna tell you 10 years well five years of their history but both Melissa and Deborah reaped the benefits of the growing law firm obviously Melissa became busy and a popular attorney um you know fighting for the underdog and these clients that were like victims and things like that she was really well liked Deborah was promoted to COO of the company and began making a six-figure salary. So it's really cute. Like, it's these women from humble beginnings. They didn't graduate call or didn't graduate high school at the same time of everyone else and, you know, have a privileged life. But they both made it work, and they're both working at this law firm that also started small and just bawling out. Boss babes. Yeah, boss babes link up. (laughs) So it just really seemed like, as of now, things could be perfect. What could go wrong? What went wrong? (laughs) Tell me. Yeah, a lot was going wrong, actually. Um, So one thing, let's just say, Melissa ended up getting 
briefly married to another attorney. They also quickly got divorced. And at one point in time, Melissa also left Rothstein, Rosenfeld, and Adler. We'll talk about that more in a minute. So she did leave, even though they were just very successful. Deborah, on the other hand, was caught up in a physically and emotionally abusive marriage that she was trying to leave. She was married to a man named Tony, and there was just so much with, like, their tumultuous marriage. I could go into it a lot. There was stuff with child abuse and things like that. I don't want to talk about that with him because it was just hard to read, but apparently, you know. So did they have kids together? Deborah and Tony did, yes. Melissa and her husband did not. No. But yeah, Deborah and Tony, they did. So it was kind of sad, you know, like Deborah's this boss at work and then she goes home and her husband was like a total abusive piece of shit to her and her kids, honestly. So, yeah. It's kind of sad how I feel like it can be like that with a lot of people. You definitely don't know what people are going through. And it's a lot of the times the strongest people who don't speak up because they don't want to seem weak, but... Mm-hmm. girl that's a different story girl and you know what's really sad too about this like i said i'm not gonna get fully into it but it was said that he would like abuse the kids when she was gone so he also was like psychologically abusive because he would do so little things to the kids and then they'd be too scared to tell their mom so it was just a really sad situation for being a you know a strong woman and overcoming so much it was sad for deborah She, with the help of Melissa, did decide to leave her husband once it came down to it because he was just so abusive. But as with these relationships, it's not like she could just leave and they separated and things were great. He was still very obsessed with her. But her best friend, Melissa, was there for her and she helped her every step of the way. Oh, so sweet. Melissa also helped her sister Carrie with her divorce. Like, she would just step in, and she loved helping other people. And that was what she was doing. Like I said before, Melissa did briefly leave the Rothstein-Rosenfeld-Adler firm. But she came back in 2008, or I'm sorry, I think the end of 2007, when she learned that Deborah sadly had ovarian cancer. Oh, no. I know, but at least the two besties are reunited once again because Melissa comes back to the firm. She wants to spend more time with Deborah and help out with Deborah's children and everything like that because she's battling cancer now and she's also still trying to go through with that divorce. In 2008, Melissa actually made partner at the firm after her return. Nice. First woman to be a partner And she was ecstatic about it. She told her friends and family that she hoped to be a judge one day. And it's just really great. You know, even being a partner, she still had her eyes set on doing something even better. Um, And she was really excited about that. On March 4th, 2008, Melissa worked her day at the firm as usual. Her and Deborah chatted about their plans and Melissa was asking Deborah about a newly purchased brown pinstripe suit that she was wearing for the first time. Appearances were a big deal at the law firm. You know, this is early 2000s and you're women working in the law firm. You're expected to look put together all Especially the time. Especially if you're partner. Mm-hmm. And so she was asking Deborah about her outfit and Deborah was saying, you know, you look great. And, um, in the article I read, it even said that sometimes that they would buy two of the same outfit if they knew the other one would like it. I can't handle it. That's so cute. Yeah. So Deborah's like, no, you look amazing. Don't worry about it. And they chat and like normal, they leave after work. Melissa stops at a Publix grocery store to get some items for dinner, which was pretty typical of her. She called her sister Carrie and her niece as she shopped. They talked normally. Melissa did not seem out of the ordinary or say anything was on her mind or anything had happened. So following the trip to the grocery store, Melissa returned home as usual. The next day on March 5th, 2008, Deborah went into the law firm 
into the office as usual, but she was quickly approached by Melissa's assistant. The assistant asked if Deborah had seen or spoken to Melissa that morning because she didn't show up for work and she was not picking up her phone. Oh, no. Yeah, and sadly, Deborah knew straight away that something was wrong because Melissa was usually the first person in the office. She was never late, and Deborah obviously called her repeatedly, and Melissa did not pick up, even for Deborah. Deborah called Melissa's sister, Carrie, who also had not spoken to her that morning. The two women obviously were really worried at that point, and they called local police and asked if they would perform a welfare check at Melissa's home. The police agreed. And you know what? This isn't any hate. This is nothing. But it's just like, obviously, you can't help to think that irony when it's a wealthy woman who doesn't show up for work literally like two hours after she didn't show up for work. They're already going to her house. Okay, maybe not two maybe hours. it's different because it's early 2000s. Maybe. But anyway, I yeah, I just was kind of like, oh. And I thought you had to wait 24 hours if they were an adult. <laughs> <laughs> True. But like I said, no to you because it's not anything shady going on with the police. I just was like, oh, okay, well, well then. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, noted. The police, they agreed to do the welfare check and they met um, Deborah and Carrie outside Melissa's home so that they could assist in the search, you know, let them know what was normal, what was out of the ordinary with Melissa's home and everything like that. I will say, though, if that was my best friend, I'd probably just go in on my own. Yeah, I don't know if they couldn't because she had a garage and everything. Like, I don't know if they couldn't go in. I think they had to, though. So maybe they're just scared. Well, also, when you think about it, they're attorney. They're not attorneys. Yeah, but Deborah works at true. the law firm. Good point. Maybe she's thinking if something bad were to happen, we just need the police to deal with this. Yeah. I don't know, but... So they met the officer there, and the three of them go inside the home. They, I believe, go into the garage first, and as soon as they did, they see that things are certainly out of the ordinary. Melissa's car was not in the garage, and it wasn't outside, so already weird. Where's her car? And her grocery bags from the public store remained on the ground, like she took them out of her car and set them on the ground. Oh, no. There was an orange liquid that had been splattered all over the garage walls, the door, the ground, the, like, doggy gate. And Deborah and Carrie asked the officer if he knew what that was, and he immediately got kind of worried and said, yeah, that's pepper spray. (gasps) No. So at that point, they kind of know that they're dealing with at least a kidnapping because... She's nowhere to be found, and there it was all over the garage. Deborah looked down on the ground in that moment, and she also saw a small brown button on the garage floor, and she knew it was from Melissa's new pantsuit that they had talked about the day before. I'm already like, who is it? Is it Deborah's ex-husband? Is it another attorney at the law firm? <sighs> Girl. And we're not even, like, into more drama. Like, I'm shook. Police immediately amp up their search because now they're very concerned. They have this high-end attorney, and clearly there was some sort of incident in the garage. They initially thought maybe because of Melissa's designer bag and suit, she went to the grocery store before. Maybe someone at the store had seen her and attempted to follow her home. Robbery situation, perhaps. The Publix grocery store did have quality surveillance cameras for once. (laughs) And police got them for once. (laughs) But when they did, Melissa was literally like the only shopper in her vicinity. And no one was around her. No one followed her. And like Carrie had told the police, she just talked on the phone, got her groceries and left. So that seemed like a bust. It wasn't anyone in the store following her. At that point, then, police are like, okay, well, it's probably personal if it's not a random robbery. Because even if there was an altercation, if someone planned a robbery, why would you kidnap the homeowner? Homeowner. Jesus. Homeowner. Thank you, Jackie. (laughs) 
Because even if you were going to rob them, even if you knew Melissa's a high-end attorney and stuff like that, why would you wait for her to be at home and rob her and then take her? But there was nothing taken from her house either. Hmm. Plus, the pepper spray was too intentional. Police also were thinking someone either brought it into the garage themselves and used it to disarm Melissa or to hinder her. That's what I'm thinking. Or Melissa herself had the pepper spray on person and had to defend herself and was expecting someone. So if that's the case, who was she so afraid of? Good point. On March 8th, 2008, three days after Melissa was reported missing, a great inspector in the town of Plantation, Florida, was cleaning and inspecting the grates in the area by the canals. So Plantation was a wealthier town, and the residents, a lot of them had small canals in the backyard that they would have little boats on and things. Very Florida, like picture a nicer Florida area. They just all have these small canals, and they just boat around. Mm-hmm. And the inspector, I think he got a call about maybe one of them being cl- a grate being clogged or something like that. So he's looking through the grates that are going through the canals and he sees what he believes to be a mannequin in one of the canals. No. As he investigates and moves the mannequin to get a better look, he realizes, unfortunately, it is not a mannequin. It was a human woman and she was deceased. He immediately called the police and they came to, they, like, he was smart. He didn't try and take it out or anything. He saw it was a person and he called police. They immediately went to the canal, took photos and everything like that. And once they removed the body from the canal, they determined that, sadly, it was Melissa Lewis. And an autopsy determined that she had been beaten and her cause of death was manual strangulation before she was placed into the canal after her death by the killer. Yeah, it's very, very sad. Now it's so strange why they would put her in the canal. Yeah. Also, how is this buried in the backyard? I thought the same thing. I was like buried in the backyard because the canal was their backyards. Uh. Like it wasn't just it's hard to explain. You should look up pictures because in Florida, in these wealthy areas... Yeah, like, I guess I know what you're talking about. Your backyard is a canal, so it's not a public water thing, you know? Like, as horrible as yeah. it is, if this homeowner didn't call because they thought the grate was clogged... That's even scarier, though. I know. It's kind of like... It is really scary. Imagine you're just in your backyard. You're going to go get on your boat and you see someone's yeah. junk there. It's creepy that it's not public because you picture someone just like rolling up to a residential neighborhood in someone's backyard canal. It's very Florida. Yeah, it is. So at first it seemed like there weren't many potential leads. Even though Melissa was a prominent attorney, she represented victims who were like unjustly fired or mistreated. It wasn't the type of attorney where people were going to come for her after the fact. Like, she's, like, the one type of attorney you really like because she's fighting for her people's rights. No one was going to come for her or anything like that. She didn't even do criminal cases. So police knew and they went and asked people at the firm and people confirmed that there wasn't any grudges or anything from her clients. And the clients really respected Melissa. Melissa's ex-husband was brought into the investigation pretty soon. Her ex, like I said, was a prominent attorney. And in the months prior to her murder and shortly after they divorced, she found out that he actually married one of his employees and she was pregnant. Yikes. Yeah. So that's very sad. Melissa was very heartbroken by all accounts, because her ex was the one who wanted the divorce. So they said she was blindsided by that. And then she kind of found out it was because he's with someone at his firm. Well, then it kind of doesn't seem like he would do it, though, to be honest. Well, that's exactly what police determined. They were like, he is about to have a kid with another woman, and he's the one who wanted the divorce. 
And then he also had a solid alibi. So for once, the ex-husband had nothing to do with it. <laughs> I guess when you don't have kids, that makes things But easier. what about Deborah's ex-husband? <laughs> Girl. It could still be someone else's ex-husband. Speaking of ex-husbands, uh, Melissa's sister, Carrie, she had an ex-husband who was had a oh, police yeah. record. He had been in prison. He was also abusive. Carrie told police that Melissa helped her with the divorce paperwork and proceedings. And so police were like, hmm, maybe he's resentful. When they went to question Carrie's ex, they learned he had severe multiple sclerosis and wasn't even physically capable of that. He also had a solid alibi. (laughs) He's not faking his MS. No. So that's two exes off the list, baby. There's one more. Yeah. Before we talk about Tony, though, let's throw some other drama into the mix. Why don't we? Because soon enough, a potential motive was made very public to all of Florida and nationally. In 2009, the year after Melissa's murder, police issued a warrant for Scott Rothstein's arrest. It was discovered that the millionaire lawyer The brains and hustle behind Rothstein, Rosenfield, and Adler was running a Ponzi scheme. What? Yep. And we're talking Jordan Belfort-level Ponzi scheme. We are talking millions of dollars, drugs, sex, sex worker parties where he would buy them for potential investors like golden toilets for him and his wife, private jets, every car you could imagine. It literally was Jordan Belfort. And you know what's so weird? I looked it up after this because I was like, dang, I can't believe Wolf of Wall Street was so popular. This guy's doing the same thing out of a law firm. Scott Rothstein and Jordan Belfort were born two months apart, both in Bronx. In the Bronx, New York, the wow. same year. I was like, what? Something was going on. Did they scheme together? <laughs> scheme and birth. So I would definitely recommend, there is like an entire book about Scott Rothstein. Read about it. That whole thing was seriously crazy when they found out. This is like a side note. When they found out that, when he found out that he was being investigated, because people also say that it was like, politicians and police were also involved it was like everyone Mm, god somehow he found out that he was going to get arrested and he sent an email to the law firm saying like immediately attention everyone we have a high-end client who needs to escape the u.s i need everyone to send me back where there's not extradition policies to the u.s like for this for me thanks (laughs) And then he did go on the run. He did? Yeah. Oh. They convinced him, though, to come back. So, like I said, this was, like, an entire thing. And this was, you know, this wasn't just her partner, her employer. This was, like, her old professor. Yeah. She was brought up under his wing, basically. So, did he do it? Let me get more info. Needy. God, I want to know. The scheme itself is confusing. Like, I do want to talk about the scheme because it plays into the case. So let me read a quote from the Forbes article that I read. So, quote, Rothstein, whose known specialty was sex discrimination suits, would escort a potential investor up his inner sanctum, which required a trip through a private elevator disguised as an ordinary door, past a security-coded door, and often under the watchful eye of an off-duty police officer standing on guard. Oh. Once inside, Rothstein would disclose that he had extracted a lucrative pre-litigation settlement from a client's former employer, showing redacted legal documents seemingly confirming the pitch. As the client was in need of money up front, the investor was offered the opportunity to purchase the settlement, often at a steep discount. To prevent the investor from talking about the deal, Rothstein warned that if the facts of the case became knowledge, the settling company would go to court and stop the payments. End quote. This kind of seems like a scam, though. Yeah. 
It literally, it was. Like, but this is 2008. Like, or this, well, this was like 2000. Could have been 1999. So if you guys. Okay. Yeah, I guess. I don't know. It'd be a little different then. If you guys don't understand, he basically was saying that the other, you know, he would get these people, some of the times really big companies who were involved in lawsuits, and he would say the other party will settle um, and we can get them to settle, but you also have to pay a sum of money up front. That wasn't true, and he was just keeping the money. So he was making millions. Rothstein admitted to authorities that the scheme began in 2005 However, a deep investigation discovered that the scheme was going on for as long as the firm existed since 1999. Wow. They found proof of different settlements that he and the firm kept without telling the client that a settlement had been reached. He would do that too, and then they would just like find out publicly if they tried to search for court documents. That's bad. <sighs> yeah, it's just like so many years of covered so much. And who was Scott Rothstein's assistant in the fraud and the cover-up? His COO and Melissa's best friend, Deborah Coffey. No. Yes. I'm crushed. I know. Deborah told authorities and she told the Buried in the Backyard show that... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, it's just funny that I can send that. The B&B. <laughs> Deborah said... And always has claimed that Melissa had no idea about the ongoing scheme and was entirely clueless. They say that, you know, you could just be so busy with your law firm that you're not paying attention to what your coworkers and stuff like that are doing. I mean, why would you, too? If you're a partner, you have so much on your plate. Like She was only made partner in 2007, and they said that... Well, she did leave for a while. Yeah, but they said that this started in 1999, which was when she started as a law clerk. Mm. But, yeah, and it's just, like, the thing that people point out now looking back on it is how the hell did no one think that an attorney, no matter who you are, was making millions to the point you could have private jets? He was endorsing political campaigns. Yeah, the only way you have that type of money if you're an attorney is if you hit a giant settlement. But even if you do, that's usually in the news. And if you, like, somehow invest it, then yeah, but... So because of that, too, people just wonder, how could Melissa not have known? I just feel like it's not your place to say anything. Agreed. And it it is, you know, like people aren't just like, no one is saying Melissa was a horrible person or anything like that. People are just wondering after if the she fact. she even suspected. Yeah. And, you know, police concluded then it kind of made sense that Deborah wasn't an attorney. I don't believe she went to college. She might not have even graduated high school. No shade. But people are just saying it makes sense that she was made COO because her and Scott were in on this together. She knew everything. So wow. she basically was being paid a six-figure salary to, to keep quiet, to lead potential investors up through the secret doorway into the firm. It was just so much. And Deborah then dropped another bombshell to police. Melissa and Scott were having a sexual affair and had a sexual affair since she was a student. <gasps> No, but he's married. Mm-hmm. Melissa, not you. Yeah. And apparently, like I said, it started when she was a student. He supposedly had many affairs with students. Ew. Yeah, he was married through all of this. So he... Skeezy. Deborah even told police that the reason Melissa briefly left the firm was because of her relationship with Scott and that it was the talk of the office and that she was so embarrassed that she left the firm and she only returned after finding out Melissa had cancer. You mean Deborah? I'm sorry. After finding, thank you. After finding out that Deborah had cancer. Wow. And Melissa never even told her family that she had a sexual relationship with Scott. She just said that. At points, they didn't get along and she didn't want to work for him. I'm not sure the timeline of the affair. I'm not sure. Deborah kind of made it seem that it was only when she was a student and shortly after. 
So I'm not sure if they had an on and off affair up until 2007, 2008. I'm really not sure, but that just made things even more like so many more pieces to the puzzle. But now is the time. The big reveal. You want to know who the killer is? Yeah. Who do you think? Take a guess. Mm. Scott? I just end the episode there with the just the <laughs> silence of Jackie Paul. <laughs> Me and my thoughts. Next week on Ew That's Creepy. Podcast. Oh my god. Scott? No. Deborah's ex husband? Yes. So, yes, very sadly. Police put the pieces together, and we will go into all the little itty bitty pieces that. It came down to one simple thing. Resentment. Deborah's ex, Tony Villa- Villegas, murdered Melissa because she helped Deborah leave him. And yeah, let's just get into specifics. So police, it all started, like police realized that pretty soon when they interviewed Deborah and Carrie, because Deborah and Carrie said that before her murder, Melissa had purchased pepper spray. Tony was becoming increasingly violent towards Deborah and increasingly threatening. He was violent to her and the children. And he, at one point, had told his one child that he thought Melissa and Deborah were becoming too close and that they had decided to both leave their husbands so that they could spend time together just as friends. But he just was like, you know, Melissa left her husband and she basically convinced Deborah to leave me so that they could just hang out and it be the two of them. Melissa also, she was over at Deborah's all the time. She didn't have children. She didn't have a boyfriend or anything. She had her sister Carrie and her nieces. And then she had Deborah and Deborah's children. And she treated Deborah's children amazingly. She loved to cook. They said that Melissa was a great cook. So she would cook Deborah's children dinners when Deborah couldn't. Aww. Take them out. She even got a timeshare by Disney so she could take her nieces and Deborah's kids all to Disney. She's the best. So other she, than the affair, other than the affair, yeah. Well, like I said, well, it could right. have been. It, yeah, I mean, it, everyone makes mistakes. It could have been when she was a student. When you're a student yeah, and you, you don't have think about it. a person in power, it could have been gaslighting. It could have been a lot of things. Yeah, exactly. It's not you know the best, but we all make mistakes, and she's still obviously a great person. Mm-hmm. And as Melissa, Deborah's kids even joked that Melissa was like their dad because she would do all the stuff. And it's sad as she is just becoming closer and closer to Deborah's family. Tony is watching from afar and just slowly unraveling. Uh, Like I said, he starts to tell the children that he hates Melissa and all this stuff. At one point, he threatened to set Deborah and Melissa on fire. Ew. It scared the two so bad that they decided to get protection. Deborah purchased a taser while Melissa purchased pepper spray. And Melissa's sister, Carrie, remembers her telling Melissa that she should actually get a gun since she lived alone. But sadly, Melissa was just not comfortable with that and thought that getting pepper spray would be enough protection. When police heard that during the interview, that was when they kind of put the pieces together. You know, we know it's pepper spray on the wall. We can tell. And it seems then that Melissa was afraid of one person, and that was Tony. The next piece of the puzzle that police found that tied Tony to the murder was Melissa's cell phone records. Her Melissa's car also had a GPS tracker, and they found her phone or I'm sorry, her car was in a parking lot like a mile or so away from the house. And when they found the car, her jacket from her pantsuit was in there. They also tracked her cell phone and they saw that Melissa's cell phone traveled that night. So after she was killed, it traveled to the parking lot where her car was. And then it traveled to the canal where her body was found. 
After the canal, the cell phone moved 30 miles away to the city of Hialeah, and then it moved to Palm County Beach the next morning where it was finally shut off. Police didn't know what that meant because they didn't they knew that Melissa didn't have any ties to that area. So they wondered if they brought it up to Deborah and Carrie if they would know if that area was significant. When investigators asked the women if Hialeah was significant to Melissa, they claimed that she had no connections, but Deborah, her stomach sank because she knew that her estranged husband, Tony, was currently staying with a friend in Hialeah. No. And she also said that his, he was a train conductor at the time and his train route started in Palm Beach County. So it was pretty obvious, like just by that fact, that the cell phone moved from the canal where Melissa was found to Hialeah, then to Palm Beach County. Exactly where Tony would have been. Interesting. Seems like it's him. Needing concrete evidence, police continued poking around and police went to question Tony's roommate at the time, who said that they remembered Tony being there, coming home the night of Melissa's murder on March 4th, and that that night, Tony was scrubbing his arms and his clothes, and he asked the roommate if he knew how to get pepper spray off of skin. <laughs> the roommate said that he didn't. He said that Tony gave some explanation that didn't seem hella suspicious so the roommate googled how to get how to get pepper spray off clothes and skin and police actually went through the roommate's computer and confirmed that on that night there was a google search for how to get pepper spray out of clothes and skin wow i know i was like damn they're really getting every little bit of evidence Police got a search warrant for Tony's cell phone and they saw that it traveled the same exact route as Melissa's cell phone. Idiot. Like, how stupid can you be? I know. The final nail in the coffin, as if we didn't need one, but we have it, came when police investigated Melissa's suit jacket that was found in the trunk of her car. There was DNA evidence on the suit, which was tested and determined to be Tony's DNA. And as you can recall, the suit jacket was new. That was the first time Melissa wore it. So he couldn't even try and do like the transfer. Like, oh, I saw her on this day. And blah, yeah. blah, blah. You have nowhere to run. You have nothing, Tony. Nothing. What do you have? Nothing. <laughs> but Tony still to this day has never admitted to anything. He never has admitted to killing Melissa. He doesn't even say he disliked her. He said that... He actually had no reason to dislike her and that Deborah made her own choices and things like that. But police believe that Tony obviously was resentful and hating Melissa for helping Deborah leave him and that he was either hiding in the garage or waiting for Melissa to come home. They don't really know either way. So creepy. I was going to say either way. That's terrifying. He attacked her. He beat her with his fists around her head and her neck area. Melissa fought back with the pepper spray. And at that point, police believe that he overpowered her and strangled her to death on the floor of her own garage. He then dropped her car off at the nearby parking lot before taking her body to the canal and then returning home. What I don't understand is how. how that is exactly what I was going to say. How? Like How does no one see that? And... How did he physically leave her car at the parking lot and get home? I feel like he had an accomplice. Because Hialeah was like 30 miles away or something. Yeah, it wasn't he definitely, close. I feel like, had help. That was the one thing that in no articles I read, because he doesn't admit to it, how? Did you take a cab? Wasn't there? Couldn't someone confirm that? Like, I really don't understand that. But like I said, he has always maintained that he's innocent and he had no ill will towards Melissa for the divorce. In July of 2016, eight years after Melissa's murder, there was tons of legal drama with like the Ponzi scheme with Tony. At one point, he was supposed to go to trial in 2010, but was deemed unfit to stand trial. In 2016, though, 
he was found guilty of murder. There's just way too much evidence. The DNA on her jacket, the cell phone trails, the roommates proof that they searched for pepper spray removal. It didn't matter if he said he had nothing to do with it. Yeah, that's too much. But Tony has said that he was framed and that he didn't actually kill Melissa and that Deborah and co-conspirators, I believe, framed him and put his DNA on Melissa's jacket and everything like that. He's never saying specifically like who is framing him, just Deborah or is someone helping her? Whom? But... Obviously, people point out the fact, did perhaps Deborah, did someone perhaps proposition Tony to kill Melissa? Did she find out about the scheme? Did she find out about the Ponzi scheme? Deborah and Scott were also extremely close, the two of them. So people wonder did perhaps they have something to do with this? Like I said, did they proposition Tony? Did someone offer to pay him? Did they actually frame him for this because they knew that he was kind of losing it and he hated her? Yeah, that's true. It's just a lot of questions and people do kind of believe that because... So Scott Rothstein, he was sentenced to 50 years in prison for multiple charges. People think it's strange because after he was convicted and after everything was made, not when he was convicted, but when everything was made public about his whole scheme, a bodyguard of his committed suicide, quote unquote, shortly after the scheme was revealed. And people thought that was a little strange. In 2010, a former student-slash-girlfriend-slash-law clerk of Scott's also committed suicide. And people, police vehemently deny that those two suicides had anything to do with the Scott Rothstein case and things like that. But this whole thing is just like people also say that police were on the payroll of Scott Rothstein. Did he perhaps have anything to do with these murders and police are covering it up because they're on his payroll? That's a good point. Are people sometimes say, did Melissa perhaps uncover this in 2008 prior to it being made public? Was she going to be made public? Like, was she going to go forward? People don't know. And it's just shady the fact that the law firm that these people worked at politically endorsed people they had police officers working inside their security room where they had investors come up it's just so many like so many corrupt cooks in this corrupt little kitchen (laughs) it is pretty crazy (laughs) and they're making corruption pie (laughs) (laughs) they're making a corruption and destruction salad (laughs) corruption consomme (laughs) but Yeah, it's just, like, so much. My head is literally spinning. Deborah, she actually was sentenced to 10 years in prison for her role in the scheme, too, because she assisted in it. She served three years and was released on parole. Still to this day, she maintains that Melissa knew nothing about the scheme And maintains that no one set this up and that Tony wasn't set up or anything like that. Deborah says that she just feels insurmountable guilt. The fact that her ex murdered Melissa and like murdered almost a sister to her and a parent to her children. And, you know, no matter until proven otherwise... I do feel really bad for Deborah because it's like she had a lot of trauma. She was trying to escape this really abusive and horrible marriage. Then her best friend passes away. Then the year after this scheme is revealed and she gets to she's sentenced to prison. Like obviously what happened, she was involved in it. So that's horrible. But at the same time, all of those events happening at once, it is really sad. Yeah, that's really tough. And it's not a good thing that those kids lost both her parent her children lost both their parents for a short while at the same time yeah that's, like that's really sad 
it is really sad. It's really tragic. I feel horrible for her children. Like they literally said that just all the stuff when her adult daughter was pregnant, Tony was even like throwing her across the room and stuff like that. Mm. So the kids just went through so much. Like I really, really hope that Melissa, Deborah, Carrie, their families are all healing and especially all the kids involved in this matter. It's just really sad and just really tragic. It seems like Tony, this man just totally unraveled and just wanted to take out a strong, powerful woman because there was nothing he could do to control the situation. It's That's crazy. It is. The whole thing is just nuts. And like the Rothstein law firm, right when she was murdered, they put up $250,000 for a reward. Sheesh. I genuinely, no matter the schemes, no matter if the police were involved in it, everything like that, I do just genuinely believe it solely came down to the fact that Tony just was resentful against Melissa because even if you were framed with the jacket, the cell phone doesn't lie. And your police... Or, I'm sorry, your your police, your roommate saw you and you two together Googled. Like, nothing can say that. There was no yeah. one with you unless it's so big that someone paid off the roommate to lie, took his cell phone, took it with him. Just doesn't seem like people would keep their mouth that quiet. Yeah, it doesn't. If anything, you do think maybe he had someone, an accomplice, but That's he just, what I think. he just never admitted it. So it's like he didn't even throw anyone under the bus, but... Dang. Just feel so bad for so crazy. Melissa, like this fighter of justice, just helping yeah. people. And that's what the fuck she gets. It pisses me off. It really does. Yeah, it is really, really tragic. And just for no reason. <sighs> Men. But let me know if you guys have heard of this case. Like I said, like, let's just all keep Melissa in our mind and fight for the underdog and help out our friends. Just being a great woman. Let me know if you guys have heard of this case. Let us know if you guys want us to do like criminal business cases like Scott Rothstein, Ponzi schemes, Jordan Belfort type shit. Yeah, I like those. So yeah, they can get really confusing, but let us know if you want more of that type of content and we'll deliver it. We'll serve it up. We'll serve up some salad <laughs> on, a, on a platter. We'll serve up corruption on a consomme platter. <laughs> On a consomme cloche. A corruption cloche. <laughs> Love that. I'm sure they'll really eat that up. <laughs> oh, that's fun. We have fun. Well, we hope you guys, as always, are staying safe and having a great fall. Thank you, as always, for listening to Una's Creepy Podcast. And we will see you guys next time for another episode. Bye. Bye. Want to creep on us? Follow us on social media at ew, that's creepy podcast, or send us an email at ew, that's creepy podcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Thanks, creepy cats. <laughs>